Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. For anyone that's in the Austin, Texas area, or anyone interested in checking out a new local reefing club, go check out the Austin Reef Club. You can get a direct link to their forums under the discussion forums at TalkingReef.com, or you can visit them directly at www.AustinReefClub.com. Now, last week's show was a little bit longer and a little bit more formal, so I didn't get a real good chance to get into the details, but I did want to take a minute and give a special thanks to Coral Dynamics for being the first official show sponsor of the Talking Reef podcast. For anyone that's interested or looking for quality captive-propagated corals, clownfish, cardinals, seahorses, or anything like that, make sure you go check out Coral Dynamics. You can get to their site through the links at TalkingReef.com, or visit them directly at CoralDynamics.com. If you have any questions for them, or just looking for some more information, make sure you check out the sponsor forums at TalkingReef.com, and you can ask them whatever questions or get any information that you need from them. Uh, Real nice people, so if you need anything at all, make sure you head over there, and feel free to ask whatever you need. So what I'm actually going to do in this show here is it's going to be question and answer show uh, number five, I believe it is. Uh, Recently, the Talking Reef podcast released a couple of video casts, uh, actually about three of them. Uh, The first two were about culturing rotifers and phytoplankton. And these shows really generated a lot of questions and stuff that came up in the Talking Reef forums as a response to the show. So I thought I'd take the time this week and go through and try to answer a lot of these questions. My original plan was that I was going to do this as a secondary show, um, but I decided to make this as a primary show because I've actually got another series of questions and answers of stuff that had come up in the forum. So I'm going to kind of go through and we're going to start discussing a lot of this stuff. So let's go ahead and get started with the discussion on phytoplankton. Now, basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through some of the questions that came up and I'm going to take a minute and talk about them. The first question that came up is uh, regarding phytoplankton the phytoplankton, is this the same as DTs? Now, DTs is the stuff that you can get at the local fish store, and it comes in various size bottles, and it's concentrated phytoplankton. Now, is this the same? Uh, Kind of. For the most part, it's the same thing. It's the same general stuff inside. The difference between this and and between culturing your own phytoplankton and buying DTs is when you culture it yourself, it's pretty much as fresh as you can get it, uh, the stuff at DTs is not technically as fresh. Uh, don't get me wrong; it's still good product. Many people have used it with very, you know, with real good success. The stuff, uh, the DT stuff, is much, much more concentrated too. So that's another good thing. So, if, for example, let's say you have a 30-gallon fish tank and you need to dose or add some phytoplankton in there for your corals or your filter feeders. With the DTs, you might only add a, a tablespoon, whereas if you're doing your own culture, you might need to add a quarter of a cup. Uh, so there's a you need to add a lot more when you're doing your own, own culturing versus when you're using something like DTs. 
So one of the other questions that often comes up for this is, can you start a phytoplankton culture with DTs? Now, technically you should be able to, because DTs contain, is supposed to contain a live culture phytoplankton, and it should be able to be used. Now, I have yet to see anybody that has, been, has successfully started a stable, ongoing culture with DTs. I've heard a couple reports that people had started cultures and got it to go through a split or two, but it eventually all died off. I'm not saying it's not possible. Don't get me wrong here. What I'm saying is I have yet to meet anybody or talk to anybody who has been successful at starting a sustained uh, home culture of phytoplankton using DTs. The next question that comes up is, since we're adding the plankton types food, uh, this this plankton food, uh, are there any nitrates or uh, phosphate concerns that come in when feeding the tank, when feeding the plankton to the tank? Now, if you remember from the video, we used something called microalgae grow in that video. And this was something that was actually used to, it's basically the food for the phytoplankton as we're growing it. And essentially it's like a, a fertilizer. Now this, this chemical, this food, uh, this fertilizer is very high in phosphates and in nitrates. So the question comes up, is there any concerns? Are we basically dumping uh, a cup of nitrates and phosphates into our tank? Now the reality is here is, um, while technically there are some in there when you mix up the culture media, most of this is picked up and consumed by the phytoplankton as it grows and as it cultures in your, in your containers. So there's not a real big concern with this. Now something that I, I have meant to do, which I have not done yet actually, uh, I just thought of, was I was going to go through and do a test of nitrates and phosphates on some phytoplankton before I actually put it into my tank. Uh, that's something that I will do, and I will get the results of that posted on the forums, because uh, I don't think I've ever seen anybody actually do that before. But uh, this is something that I've been doing for uh, a long, long time now, and many, many, many people do with some great success. So um, I'm very confident in it, and I have not heard of any major nitrate or phosphate concerns that come up with dosing uh, your home-cultured phytoplankton into your tank. Now, question number three comes up. How much and how often do you put you feed the phytoplankton to your tank? Now, this can vary depending on what you have in your tank and really needs to be determined on your own. If you have a lot of stuff in your tank that's going to be a filter, that's going to feed on this stuff, a lot of filter feeders, a lot of invertebrate uh, corals, anything that's going to pick this type of stuff up, you might need to feed more. If you don't have as much, then you're going to need to feed less. You also need to keep in mind the size of the tank. If you have a large tank and uh, you'll have some, you know, let's say you have five different filter feeders, whatever they are, and this is just for an example, and you have them in a 30-gallon tank, and you have those same five in a 100-gallon tank, needless to say, you're going to need to put a lot more in the 100-gallon tank because it's going to get diluted and it's going to be a lot harder for those filter feeders to pick it out. So it's honestly a combination between the amount of filter feeders that you have the type of filter feeders, and the si overall size of the tank. Now, just for comparison, on my 100-gallon display tank, which is very heavily stocked with coral and has lots of filter feeders in it, I put about a cup of phytoplankton in every usually two to four days. So about, you know, depending on, on what's going on, uh, two, maybe three times a week I'll put it in there. Now, on my smaller tank, which has less filter feeders, and is 30 gallons, I put about a quarter of a cup in there. 
and so far, and I only do that usually about once a week. So uh, you really need to play around with it a little bit and kind of come up with what works best for you. Now, the next question that had come up a couple times was, how long between the splits? So how long do you let the phytoplankton culture before you actually perform a split? Now, for this, it takes a little bit of observation, but can be done fairly easily. Now, on your first culture, if you're starting off from a culture disc or something like that, you're going to usually wait about 12 days, if I remember correctly, uh, 9 to 12 days. Uh, and from this point forward, basically, even at that in the beginning, what you're looking for to determine the culture when you need to split is you want to wait till a point when it stops getting darker. So every day you make an observation of these containers. Uh, it's usually not very hard because you usually have a bright light behind them. This is your fluorescent lights that you all saw in the videos. So you're going to look at these. And you're going to make a determination, is it getting darker? Is it darker today than it was yesterday? Now, this is the official answer. Is it that easy? Usually is. But making that determination can be a little bit difficult when you're staring at it and trying to remember, ooh, is it darker than it was yesterday? I think it was. So, um, you know, play it a little bit, you know, I just... Try to guess at it a little bit. It's really not that big of a deal. Is there harm in splitting it early? Absolutely not. If you're in question at all, please split it early. Is there harm in waiting too long? Yes. If you do not have a very stable culture going and that has been going, if you wait too long, it will crash. So it's better to do it too early than it is to do too late. Now, for me, uh, this is not something that I would recommend everybody base their cultures off of. Um, but mine can go literally well over a month without call, without making a split. Uh, so if you have a stable culture, you can let them go. Now, the normal amount of time is usually about five to seven days when you have your cultures going at, at a good rate, once you're beyond your initial couple splits. Uh, so that's basically how you know what to base it off of. If you got any more questions about that, let me know. The next question, this was the, the fifth question I'm going to go over, is can you use tap water? And the answer, no. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a little bit more than that. Uh, tap water, as many of you should know by now, contains a lot of different chemicals, minerals, and stuff like that that we don't want in there. And it's going to contaminate our cultures and, and it's basically going to cause growth problems and stuff like that. You want to use the freshest RO water with fresh saltwater mix and use that. The other question that comes up similar to this is, can we use tank water? Now, there are some people that have used tank water with very limited success. And will it work? Absolutely it will work. The problem is, is it's the, the culture is going to crash within a week or two. And this is because these, the tank water is littered with various um, other phytoplanktons, various bacteria, and many, many other types of uh, microscopic zooplankton and microbial life that is essentially going to feed on all of this, all of the phytoplankton you're trying to culture. It's going to become the dominant item, species, whatever in the in the culture container. And in time, it's going to take over, and you're not going to have any phytoplankton left. So, do not use tap water. Do not use tank water. End of story. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's pretty much about it on that one. The next question that comes up is, what is the shelf life of it? 
Now, once you do your split, uh, and I showed in the video how I usually put it into a two liter and put it into, uh, I've got a little, one of those little college beer fridges that everybody, you know, you get in college and stuff like that. I got, it's a small little mini fridge that sits in my basement and I shove my two liters of green water or phytoplankton in there. Now, the longest I've ever kept one in there was about a month and a half. Can you keep them longer? I believe my understanding is you can keep them for about two to three months if they're kept refrigerated. Now, the trick to this is, is every day or every two days at the most, you need to just take a quick second and go through there and shake it up. Uh, I showed you in the video how it all collects at the bottom. You need to shake it up and try to do your best to make sure that that phytoplankton stays, stays suspended in the water in that bottle. So, um, again, mine usually doesn't last that much long. You know, it doesn't last much more than a month because I use it all. And if you're culturing that much to where you're not using it that, that quickly, re- cut back on your cultures. You're culturing too much. Or give it away. Take it to your local fish store, anything like that. Many people would be more than happy to take it off your hands for you. And the next question that comes up, uh, something I kind of mentioned earlier, is uh, people had asked what types of lights exactly are needed. Now, if you remember from the video, that behind my setup I had a light fixture. Now, this is the simplest piece of, it, uh, of the whole setup. It is a standard um, workshop-type fluorescent ballast, um, two standard, I think they're 40-watt, uh, normal output uh, fluorescent bulbs. The fixture itself cost me $10 at the hardware store. The bulbs were a couple dollars a piece. It was less than $20 for the whole thing. Can you use other stuff? Absolutely. They sell the small, like, handheld or portable power compact lights. They have small, regular fluorescent fixtures that you can use. The options are, there's many, many options out there for this. You don't have to use exactly what I used, uh, but this is something that a lot of people use and have had good success with. So you do not need anything special here. You just need some good, uh, good white lights. Uh, the next thing that I had noted on my little list of stuff to go over was the dates on the bottle. And this is something that I had mentioned, or I had forgot to mention when recording the video, and I had added some, some comments in those little text comments that I'm sure you all loved. Um, and it was about putting the dates on the bottle. Now, one thing that is very important is to, when you're, when you're doing your split and you're getting ready to put those back up on your shelf or whatever, it's important that you put the, the date on the bottle. So... Uh, today is when I was doing the split. I'm going to write today's date on the bottle and put it back up on the shelf. Now, this is important because in a week and you got three separate cultures going like I do, you can turn around and say, uh-oh, which day did I start this one? How old is it? How long has it been sitting here? You quickly look right at it. You know exactly when it is. You do your split. You cross that date off and below it, write the next one. Uh, it's very, very simple. And the last thing about culturing phytoplankton that I had noticed on my list, or that I had made note of on my list here, is what temperature to culture at. Now, room temperature is just fine. Uh, there's no, no reason that you necessarily need to heat or cool your culturing area. The one thing that should be mentioned is if it is colder, it will culture slower. So if you're doing it in a basement like I am, you'll have a tendency that it's not going to culture as fast. Now, if you're doing it in a garage 
uh, in the summer and it might get hot or in a closet. Some people do them in, in their closets and like buckets. There's various different ways to do it. Um, but if you're basically the point is if it's an area that's going to get warmer, then it's going to culture faster. So for me, I can essentially do a split after seven days in my basement at about 68 degrees. Now, if you're at 75, 76 degrees, you can probably do that culture, you split that culture in four days. Now, again, this is just off the top of my head because I haven't actually tested this, but what is true is that if it's colder, it's going to go slower. If it's hotter, it's going to go faster. So the next part is the rutifers. Now, Basically, there was a handful of questions, not as many, that came up about culturing these. Uh, so I'm just going to take a minute and go through these. We've got about six of them on my list here. The first question that came, came up was, uh, basically, what eats them? And essentially, it was a question about, why do I need to do this anyways? Um, rotifers are they're actually zooplankton, which means that they are... Uh, microscopic animals uh, versus the phytoplankton, which is uh, a, like a plant. It's algae. Phyto is a plant. Zoo is an animal. So now what is going to eat them? I think the real question is what's not going to eat them? Everything in your tank is going to eat them. Your corals are going to love them. They're great coral food, nutritious, the whole shop. Um, your filter feeders are going to eat them. Your um, fan worms and Christmas tree worms are going to eat them. Um, all of the little um, filter feeders that are on your live rock that come popping out are going to eat them. Uh, your fish are even going to eat them. If you dump a lot of them in there, you'll see your fish picking at them. Everything is going to eat them. They are great coral food. And coral is, is usually the main reason that people that, other than if you're a breeder, if you're breeding fish... Um, corals is usually the main reason that people will, will culture them and add them to the tank. So, again, what eats them? Everything. Pretty much everything is going to eat them. The next question that came up is, can you save the excess rotifers? So, in the uh, case where you had excess and you didn't want to dump them all in your tank, can you save them? Uh, actually, you can. Uh, and what you can do here is... Um, Right. What what you're doing is you're you've got them in salt water and you're culturing them in salt water. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to do in salt water. So what you can do is you filter them out, like I showed in the video, and then you can put them um, instead of how I showed with the the um, turkey baster and put them you know into the cup into the collection cup. Uh, if you use instead of tank water, if you use fresh RO water and collect them in the collection cup, you can actually pour them into like ice cube trays and freeze them. Now, the reason I say use RO water instead of salt water is because RO water is going to freeze at your normal 32 degrees, whereas salt water has got a lower freezing point. So if your freezer is not, uh, you know, really, really, really cold, then it's likely not going to freeze all the way, and it's likely to be more of like a, a mushy uh, it won't be totally frozen. So that's what you can do. And then you can basically pull those out and drop them in your tank as you want. Now, of course, they will the rotifers will be dead. Um, so it's not ideal, uh, but you can save them. Again, just like if you had excess phytoplankton, if you've got excess rotifers, the best thing 
an easiest thing to do is just grab that cup, take it up to local fish store, give it to them. They'll be again, they'll be more than happy to take it. Uh, get a hold of any of your reefing buddies; they'll be more than happy to take it. Uh, there's really not a great need to freeze them because you can usually always find a place to get rid of them. Now, the next thing that comes up is do you use the same water that you use for the phytoplankton? Uh, essentially, y yes, you do. Um, only you're actually using the phytoplankton itself. So if you remember correctly, I took the container and I split it in, you know, I have two bottles. I took one of the bottles and set it off to the side. I took the second bottle and split that to make my next culture, which left me with that full bottle of phytoplankton. I pour that entire thing into the rotifers. So you're not using your culture medium bottle, your water directly. You're actually using the phytoplankton, the green water, the whole thing. Just dump it right in. That is the rotifer food. That is what they're going to eat, and it's going to cause them to reproduce, and that's what's going to keep your culture going. The next one that came up is how long do you let them grow? Or in other words, very similar to the phytoplankton, there's a certain amount of time that you let them culture before you actually perform a split or in the case of the rotifers, before you actually extract rotifers. Now this is actually the exact opposite of the phytoplankton. Now in the phytoplankton, if you remember what I was just talking about, is every day it's gonna get darker. And when it stops getting darker is when you actually do the split. Now with the rotifers, uh, what you're going to do is uh, when you start the culture or when, you, or when you're just setting it up, it's going to be a dark green because you just added a bunch of green water or phytoplankton to it. And every day it's going to get lighter. And what you're going to do is you're going to let it go until it turns yellow. And at that point, you want to split that. Uh, so, uh, again, the exact opposite. Now, it is important to mention that you do not want to put rotifer water in your tank. It is very high in ammonia, very high in a lot of that stuff that you don't want, don't want uh, phosphates and uh, all that stuff. So you do not want that in there. So make sure that you uh, follow the directions from the video, that you filter the rotifers out, and put just the rotifers in your tank. Uh, the next question, this is going to be number five, is what is the bubble rate? Now, this is something that applies to both the phytoplankton and to the rotifers. And it's something that I, again, in the video, I put in there as the subtitled text. Uh, so, you know, if, for the people that didn't catch it, for the phytoplankton, you really want it to look like a, uh, a, a soft rolling boil. So you want the bubbles going in there, uh, again, just so that the surface it looks like a, a rolling boil. Uh, you don't want it real, real strong, um, but you want to keep it moving around a lot. Now, with the rowdy furs, uh, it's pretty much the exact opposite. You want little to no flow in uh, bubble rate in there. Uh, if you're doing uh, what's called, I think it's called a, a bulk culturing, and this is the setup not like the one I did, but it's where you would actually use a 5 or a 10-gallon tank. You actually don't really need any flow in there. Now, the way that I do it, it's called batch culturing. And this is where I do it in the bottles, and it's what I showed in the video. Now, technically, I do not need a flow rate in there, and I don't technically have to put the, bu the bubblers in there. Um, but I chose to, and I've had very, very good success with it. And I use about one to two bubbles per second, just enough to kind of keep everything circulating around in there. 
And the last thing, question number six, that came up about Rodifers, is how do you start the culture? Now, this can be a fairly difficult thing to to do if you don't know somebody that has that is doing this already. Um, so, you know, that being said, the easiest way is to get a hold of people within your local area. Local reef boards are great for this. Uh, if everybody, you know, everybody should be in contact with their local reefing clubs or at least a, an internet board where you can get in touch with other local reefers. And the easiest thing to do is say, hey, can I get some culture from you to start my own? Uh, anybody that's doing this, I'm sure they would be more than happy to to give you some. You don't need a lot. Um, a couple cups of their culture. A cul- you know, Basically, they'll pour you out some of their culture, and they won't even filter it or anything for you. And then you just dump that into some green water or some phytoplankton, and that's really all you need. Now, if you do not have... Uh, anybody that you can get it from, there are places that you can order it online. Um, one of our sponsors, uh, Algogen, you can make sure you can check out them because they're offering uh, various types of starter kits. Uh, and there's a various other places online that you can go and check them out. So that pretty, mu- pretty much wraps up the questions that came about uh, the, the videos that I did about phytoplankton and rotifers. Now, if you have any more questions about these... Uh, you can post them in the respective show posts. Uh, as I'm sure you all know, uh, every show that is that I, I produce has its own specific post in the forums. And if you have questions about the Rodifers, uh, post your question there uh, on that post. And if you've got questions about the phytoplankton, post it there. Uh, of course, you can post it as a follow-up to this one. Uh, but just to kind of keep everything organized so other people can find it, it might be a little bit more helpful if you post it in the respective uh, form or as a reply to the respective post. So that's going to wrap up the first section of this show where we did questions and answers about phytoplankton and rotifer videos that I did a couple weeks back. Um, at this point, we are going to move right on into the second topic. Now, this second topic is something that has come up in the last couple days in the forums. Uh, it's a lot of great information in the forums. I'll talk about that more later, but uh, basically, there's a series of questions that came up uh, from a post regarding wet-dry filters and overflow boxes, and specifically overflow tubes and stuff like that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start talking about wet-dry filters, what they are, how they work, where to use them, where not to use them, uh, stuff like that. So first of all, a wet-dry filter. What is it? Now these are those filters, those big sump-looking boxes type things that are put usually underneath the the display tank. Uh, Your main tank drains overflow box, however, uh, into this. Now, the water actually is going to pass into a tray. Now, this tray, this this is just a generic description. They aren't all the same, but these general concepts are going to apply. They'll usually pass into a tray. These trays usually hold something like carbon or some kind of uh, filter floss media or something like that. Now, the main point of the tray is it's going to disperse the water in there. And this tray is going to have a series of holes in the bottom of it, and it's going to cause it to drip or trickle, which is why they're also called trickle filters, uh, onto a, another section of, the, of this unit that holds what's called bioballs. Now, this section is going to be wet from the water trickling on top of it, but it is not going to be submerged in water. If it is submerged in water, it's going to defeat the purpose of having them there. So they should not be submerged. So the water is going to go through there, and it's going to pass over all of the bioballs in there. And then it's going to drop down to 
an area below the bio balls, which is usually just open water. And then it's going to pass over maybe through some other filters, some you know filter floss, filter pads, something like that. And it's going to go over into the second part of the wet-dry where you actually are going to have your return pump or other line out of the wet-dry filter going into either your tank, back up into your tank, or into some other filter device like a skimmer or something like that. Now that's basically what a wet-dry filter is. Now how do they work? Now again, you have your pre-filter that's usually in there. Uh, like I said, that's usually activated carbon or some kind of filter floss, uh, each performing the respective functions. Uh, filter floss isn't going to do anything but uh, collect uh, large particulate contaminants that might be in the water. And the activated carbon will do the same, but because it's activated carbon, it's a type of chemical filtration. It's going to neutralize other uh, various contaminants that might be in the tank at a chemical level. Now, the next step that I just described is it goes into this area with bioballs. Now, here's the part that a lot of people um, don't fully understand, and it's what I really wanted to make clear. What the bioballs do... Now, as your water passes through these bioballs, as I mentioned, they are not submerged. So they are in the open air, and the water is going to pass over them, so they're going to be constantly wet. Again, not submerged, but wet. Now, what happens here is you're promoting what's referred to as an aerobic environment. This is an environment that is wet and very high in oxygen. Now, the whole point and the whole purpose of the wet-dry filters is to produce this environment. Now, what this does is it promotes the culturing of aerobic bacteria. Now, if you remember back from many, many shows, uh, the substrate shows that I did, the nitrogen cycle, all the stuff I talked about, the different types of bacteria, the aerobic bacteria, anaerobic bacteria, anoxic zones, all that type of stuff. Now, this bacteria that's going to culture there is the bacteria that is going to convert your nitrites and basically it's going to convert all the stuff into nitrate. Now, this is, they do an excellent job of this, and they are very, very efficient. The problem is, is they produce, they take all this and they convert it all into nitrates. And what's going to happen is, after using one of these, you are going to end up with a load of nitrates, which is where these wet-dry filters got deemed the name of a nitrate factory. Because that's essentially what they're doing. They're sitting down here, cranking out and producing nitrates. What were they originally meant for, and why are they even on the market? A wet-dry filter is something that is designed for use in a fish-only tank. Now, why a fish-only tank? Because in a fish-only tank, the removal of nitrites, which is its key function, is extremely critical because nitrites are extremely deadly to fish. I know it's something I mentioned before. I'll just go over it again. Uh, it's you know nitrites are extremely poisonous to fish, and small amount of nitrates can cause major problems in your in a fi with fish. So the removal of nitrites is very important. Uh, these are commonly used in heavily stocked fish-only tanks where you're going to have excess amounts of ammonia, and ammonia is very easily converted into nitrite in your tank. And then you're going to use this wet-dry filter to uh, start converting the nitrites into something else that's not going to directly harm the fish. And again, it converts them into nitrates. Now, nitrates, on the other hand, are not that hazardous to fish in small to medium levels. So if you are reading 5, 10, 20, 30 parts per million in nitrites, 
it's not going to have a serious immediate effect on your fish. Now what it is going to have an effect on is any invertebrate life in your tank. Uh, corals uh, and most of the invertebrates, uh, sea stars, starfish, uh, your snails, any a lot of your, your filter feeding invertebrates that you might have in there, your cleanup crew, and again, your coral anemones, stuff like that. Uh, it's going to directly affect them. So wet-dry filters uh, are meant for fish-only tanks, and they're not meant for any type of reef tank or any type of tank that has this invertebrates or houses stuff that's sensitive to nitrates. Can you use a wet-dry filter in a reef tank or in a tank that has these, this nitrate-sensitive life? Yes, you can, but there's an important thing that you have to remember. This wet-dry filter is, no matter what, going to produce a lot of nitrate. So if you're going to use it and you choose to use it, that is totally up to you. But having those bio balls in there is going to produce this nitrate. And you have to find another way to export the nitrate out of your tank. There's just no other way around it. You have to. Uh, otherwise, you're gonna, it's going to cause major problems in your system and you're going to have extremely high nitrate levels. So that basically it kind of explains it. I mean, really, these things are not meant for reef tanks. Anywhere you go, anybody that you ask that knows about keeping reef tanks is going to tell you that they're designed for fish-only tanks. Now, there's, there are various different ways. Make sure you have a lot of live rock um, can help. Your deep sand bed can help. Uh, Denitrate uh, nitrate units can help. Um, there, there are a handful of different things that, can, that you can do. Now, what's the better option and what's the easier option? Remove the bio balls. Uh, a wet-dry filter... Uh, they're usually fairly expensive, and you can save that investment that you've already made or however you've got it, even if you got it free, um, by simply taking the bio balls out of there and using it as a sump. Uh, it's a great way of doing it. You can continue to use your activated carbon in there if you choose to. Make sure you replace it often because uh, uh, it's regular filter media and it needs to be replaced. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's that's pretty much it. I, it you can take the bio balls out of there. Uh, if you do choose to do this, um, and it's a system that's been up and running for some time with the bio balls in there, you can't just take them all out at once. The best way to do it is take um, usually about an eighth or a quarter of them out a week. Just, you know, each week, take a handful of the bio balls out, and eventually you'll get to the point where you have none in there. Uh, in the meantime, try to control your nitrate levels with uh, water changes and, and other measures, other normal measures. But in the end of the day, these things aren't meant for reef tanks. Now, if you have a fish-only tank and your nitrates are still extremely high, is it good for your fish? No, it's not good for your fish. Uh, is it going to kill them right away? Probably not. Um, but in, now, this is just my opinion. If you know that they're going to produce excess nitrates, and we know that there's other ways that we can handle our filtration, what is the purpose? Again, that's my editorial, whatever. So that's pretty much the deal with the wet-dry filters. Now, I know I kind of rambled a lot in there, so just to kind of recap, um, the wet-dry filter uses bio balls. Bio balls create an anaerobic zone. Anaerobic zones are used to culture anaerobic bacteria. Anaerobic bacteria, its job, produce nitrates. The reason it does this is to get rid of and eliminate nitrite. These are used in fish-only tanks because nitrites are extremely dangerous to fish. Nitrates are not extremely dangerous to fish. So that's their purpose. How to fix it? Take out the bio balls. Use the wet-dry as a sump. 
or quit using it altogether. Either way, using it as a sump as a sump is a great option. If you're at all handy with glass or acrylic, you can put a couple more dividers in there and make a refugium out of it. At this point, we're going to move on to the next kind of question that came up, and this is kind of related to the sump and or wet-dry filters. And what this is about is overflow boxes and a couple items about the actual overflow tubes. Uh, basically, the overflow box is it's a little contraption that has two boxes, and they sit, and basically it hangs on the side of your tank. You're going to have one box that's in the tank and one box that's outside of the tank. And what they're used for is to get water from in the tank and overflow it from one box to the other box. And then you're going to have a drain on that box. And that's usually what's going to go down to your sump, refugium, wet-dry filter, whatever you have down there. Now, the way the water is transferred from the one box to the other is by means of what's called an overflow tube, also known as a U-tube. These U-tubes have some inherent problems with them. And one of the most common problems that comes with them is the buildup of air pockets. You get air pockets in them. Now, what happens when you get air pockets in them is the flow is going to be reduced. You're going to have less water moving through the overflow box. And over time, if enough air builds up in there, it's possible, although it's never happened to me, that the siphon can actually break and it'll stop draining the water out of your tank. Now, the problem with this is that you have your main return pump that's going to continue running. And if the overflow box stops overflowing water down to your sump, then that return line is going to pump your sump dry, and it's going to you run the chance of burning up your pumps, and it will overflow your tank, which means that water is going to go on the floor. Not a good thing. Now, what do we do about this? Now, what do I do? I use this. I use an overflow box. It has a U-tube. Uh, first and foremost, the thing that you have to remember is keep the o the overflow tube, the U-tube, clean. A lot of the bubbles that you get in there are caused from one of two reasons. The first reason, and is usually a common one, is that when you started the siphon in that U-tube, you didn't do it all the way, and there were some bubbles remaining in there. The second reason is the U-tube is not staying clean, and algae starts to build up in there. And we all know algae, it's a type of plant, it produces oxygen, oxygen bubbles are going to start collecting inside that U-tube. And okay, I lied, there's, another, there's a third reason, which if the U-tube is not positioned properly, water spilling into the overflow box that's inside of the tank is going to produce bubbles, and if the U-tube is in a position where it sucks those bubbles into there, those bubbles can actually collect in there. So th there's your three reasons. Now, what do you do about these? Now, there's an easy way and a free way to take care of this. These bubbles are not, at least in my experience, because I've been using an overflow box for a long time now, and I've never had one just instantly snap and break a siphon from these air bubbles. Now, these air bubbles do build up, and I have noticed a reduction in water flow and overflow rate because of the air bubbles in there. Um, so here's a trick that I use both when starting the siphon and if I ever notice any bubbles in there between cleanings. What you do is you take the U-tube and you pick it up, keeping both ends submerged, and then you drop it back down. And that continuous, a fast, continuous tapping of it, if you pick it up and, and pop it back down, 
Now, you don't necessarily want to just drop it. You can just drop it, but if there's real stubborn ones, you might actually have to hit it back down. But what it'll do is it'll force those bubbles to go down the one side where the water's flown, and it'll force all the bubbles out. This is the method that I've been using every single time. I've been cleaning it for months and months and months and months and months. Uh, and it works every single time. Now, you might be there for 10, 15, 20 seconds tapping on this thing, but it will work. There's a second method, which is very, which is also commonly used. Now, this is using a product that it's like an airlift pump, and what they'll do is they'll actually have a a little air nozzle or a nipple in the top of the over in the U tube, the overflow tube. And what you do is you connect a hose to this, and there's actually a pump that will suck everything in that U tube out, maintaining the siphon, and then it's going to shoot it back into the into the tank. Another method that you can use is basically the same idea without the pump. You can take a little piece of flex tubing and run that into like a maxi jet power head that's right by the overflow box into the Venturi import intake on there. Now these tubes will fit right into those slots. And if you've got a maxi jet pump, you know what I'm talking about, right on the top there on the output of the pump, there's a little opening, and that's meant for Venturi. Uh, now, we don't use these in saltwater tanks because we don't use bubblers, and we don't need to inject air like that through a Venturi on a powerhead because we all know that's bad. So what you can do is if you connect that to the U-tube, it'll actually suck the water through there. Now, some of the water going through the overflow box will go back directly into the tank without going down to the, to the sump, but it will prevent all of your air bubbles from collecting in there. And again, the problem is, is if they collect in there, you do run the chance of reducing your flow rate and or breaking your siphon. Now, there's a different type of overflow box, exact same concept, but instead of using an overflow tube, this U-tube, it's actually got a slightly different design in that you have the two boxes connected by a U-shaped piece of acrylic. Now, it's a continuous piece. It doesn't come out. Um, it, it's built in there. Uh, there's a couple different manufacturers. I'm not going to get into specifics, but there's a couple different manufacturers that have these. Uh, and it's the same idea as the as the U-tube. Um, but they usually always will have this little nipple built in for you to remove the air in there. Uh, and it's also great for starting the siphon. So using these is good because they've got the, the, the little nipple and uh, port built in for you to connect in there, and that it's a good option too. Now, there's a couple of different things if you want to compare one versus the other. I use the one with the U-tube. I have not used the one that's got the built-in, basically, tube that connects the two. Uh, it's like all one solid piece. Um, I don't know how I can explain it better without actually showing pictures of it, but... And I can't really do that in an audio show. Uh, but anyways, so the the main difference is I found with the with the one that I have with the YouTube, the YouTubes are very easy to clean. They are replaceable if they get broke or if they get to a point where they can't be cleaned. They're very cheap and very easy to replace. Now, the other ones, I'm assuming, this, since the opening is much smaller, it's going to be harder to get in there and clean them. They are not replaceable, but they do have that little air nozzle already built in, so you don't have to worry about drilling and trying to get the nozzle in there. So, it's I guess it's really six and one half dozen of the other. Uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of success, both units, both can work. So, uh, I guess, you know, pick your poison. Uh, you know, if you don't have a reef-ready tank and you don't want to drill your tank, it's your only option is an overflow box. So 
Uh, that pretty much wraps up the the second topic of the show. Uh, again, we kind of covered uh, in the second topic we covered wet dry filters uh, and we covered the overflow boxes that are usually used to drain water to the wet dry filters and the different types of overflow boxes, uh, the overflow tubes, keeping them clean, all that fun stuff. So moving on, uh, we're going to have a quick tip of the week for you this week. Now, I'm not going to do a questions and answers section like I would normally do because the entire show was a questions and answers show. So throwing another question and answer in here would kind of just not be good for this one. So this week's tip of the week. Now, this came out of some questions that had come in the forums, and there's a certain somebody... You know who you are, who made a comment and basically caused this to be the tip of the week. And this tip of the week is changing your filters in your RO unit. RO filters, the pre-filters, post-filters, and the RO membrane, the DI resin, if you've got a DI filter on your uh, purification unit, those need to be changed. How often? Usually about every 12 months, depending on how often you use them. Again, check with the manufacturer to make sure you get the exact rate of change. But for your average unit, the one that I use, the one that a lot of people that I know use, uh, is, a, is a, a unit we've talked about in the forums, it has a change rate of every 12 months based upon an average use of 3 to 6 gallons of water a day. So make sure you know how you have an estimate of how much water you're using and make sure that you change those. Now, there's another part that comes into this, and it's measuring the amount of purification that your unit's doing. And you use the you measure this using something called a TDS meter. Uh, this is a total dissolved solids, I believe is what it stands for. And it's a little meter. You can get either handheld ones or ones that will be in line, and I'll talk about those in a second. But you use these meters to determine how effective your filtration is. Typical tap water can be any can have a TDS reading of anywhere from 75 to as high as over 200 is what I've seen before. Now, after going through your RO DI unit, it should be zero. Uh, anything up to two or three, um, people say that it's acceptable up to uh, as long as it's less than 10. Personally, I don't like to see it go above five, and when it does is when I change my filters. As I was mentioning, there's a unit that actually sits in line. It's called a dual inline TDS meter, and they're sold various different places online. Might be able to have your local fish store order one. I'm not sure. I got mine through a, a group buy, uh, through a local reefing uh, group buy. And basically what this is, is it's a little meter that Velcros right onto the front of your, of your RO unit, and it's got two probes with quick disconnect fittings, just like all the fittings on most standard RO units. And essentially what you do is you cut one of your lines in half and then put each of those halves into this probe. Now, if you put one of the probes after the RO filter and one of the probes after the DI filter, you're going to have a great measure of how each one is performing. What you will commonly see is a slightly higher uh, TDS reading after the RO, and then you should see a 0 or 1 TDS meeting reading after the DI. And what this is showing is it's showing how effective your RO membrane is and how effective your DI is. So if you see either of those go up, you know that it's time for a replacement. Now, depending on the RO filter or the RO membrane that you have, 
you might need to replace these at different periods. Uh, but that's, again, check with the manufacturer on that. So the tip of the week, I know this is kind of much longer than what I normally would do for a tip of the week, but check your RO filters. Make sure that they're replaced. These are something that need to be maintained. The filters are not that expensive. You can buy them in bulk, and it's cheaper, and you can have years and years worth of supply of them. I've got a six-year supply of filters, everything but my RO membrane, and it cost me less than $200 for six years. Come on, guys. Very easy, very easily measured. The TDS meters, the inline meters, the handheld meters, they're both less than $30. You can get them online. Very, very easy to do. So that's going to pretty much wrap up the show for this week. And what I'm going to do at this point is go into the community update, which is something that I always do at the end of the show. So if you don't care about the community and you're only here for the podcast, have a good week. I'll talk to you next week. And for those of you who do care, well, let's move on with it. Now, of course, the first thing I want to mention is the forums. Forums are great. They're picking up speed. There's hundreds of people in there. We hit two milestones over the last couple of weeks that I wanted to mention, and both were posted in the forum. So if you're in, the, if you're a forum member and you check them out, then you already know about these. But for those of you who don't, shame on you. You should check them out. You, you know, just go in there, check them out. Great information. But the two milestones were the first one that we hit is we hit our 500th, 500th forum member, 500th registered user in the forums. Uh, great milestone. I was very, very excited to see that. You know, just going along with that, I, we've got, you know, as of time of recording, we've got probably close to 550 uh, registered members, and we're increasing every single day we have new people registering. We have got uh, well over 7,000 posts in there. So we've got lots of members making lots of posts, lots of information. It's a great place to, to kind of get your your fix between shows. So if you want to talk about the shows, if you want to talk about reefing stuff, fish stuff, coral stuff, whatever, head over to the forums and make sure you check it out. The other milestone that we hit was an actual podcast milestone. Um, you know, a podcast website. I'm going to talk about those for a couple minutes. These stat, these are statistics. Uh, if you aren't familiar with web stuff and web servers and websites and stuff like that, this might sound like Greek to you. So I'll try to be quick with it. Uh, but for those of you that understand, this is going to hopefully will you know it's it was impressive to me and I was very happy with it. But last month in uh, what was last month? Ooh. March. Yes, because this is April. Duh. Last month. Talking Reef website had over a million hits and almost half a million pages viewed. Remarkable. We've been increasing every month, and this month we are on track to shatter that record as well. So it's been great for the website. Podcasts, episodes being downloaded thousands of times. Now, more specifically, we hit a record with our subscriber count. Now, subscriber count is something that's measured using an additional service that I have. And it measures the amount of people that check the podcast feed, which is what you use when you subscribe it, on a 24-hour period. So any, you know, it measures, over the course of 24 hours, how many unique people read, check that feed. And we hit over 500 people uh, last week, actually. And we should, we're quickly approaching that again. We should continue to maintain that number and should continue to see it rise. Now, the, what's important here is the 500 subscriber count number is important because it kind of separates uh, the podcasts that are 
small from the podcasts that are getting bigger. So what this basically means is this Talking Reef podcast is actually hitting a milestone that marks it as no longer being a just a small insignificant podcast. We are getting traffic. There's a lot, a lot of people hearing it. The show is going out to well over 50 or 60 countries around the world. It's just doing remarkably well. So I wanted to thank everybody for all their support, spreading the word about the show. It's just been doing great. So again, more about the you know about the forums. Um, you know, hundreds of people in there. So make sure you head over there, check them out. You can get updates on all this type of information because I post this stuff in there. I post information about new projects that I'm working on, which I do have some. Uh, one very exciting project that project that I'm in kind of the idea phase right now. And once I get some more ideas solidified, uh, I will be bringing that up in the forums as well. But I always post all of the the ideas in there, and we kind of. You get your chance to be interactive with um, with the show and, and help contribute to ideas and stuff like that. Uh, so, okay, that's enough about the forums and uh, enough about that. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up with the usual listener call-in recommendation for everybody. Um, it doesn't seem to be a very popular thing, but I'm going to continue to do it because hopefully people will start. You know, call in your questions, uh, comments, everything into the voicemail line. Uh, also, introductions. Do a quick Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, uh, or you're listening to the Talking Reef Podcast, or something like that. And I can throw a little bit of music behind it and stick it in the beginning of the show, and uh, those are great, and I'm still waiting to get some. Please? Somebody? Okay, I'm done begging. Uh, So anyways, it's quick, easy. Just pick up your phone, dial 586-486-3357. If you use Skype, you can call for free. Uh, Skype name is Talking Reef. Uh, same thing there. You can leave a voicemail, and that's pretty much it. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope I answered a lot of your questions, and I will talk to you all next week. <laughs>